Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track webcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. I'm going to put a fact out there, no fake news here. Innovation creates wealth. And our guest today is a master of financial innovation. Hailed as the father of financial futures by the city of Chicago, from which he hails, and the father of carbon trading by Time Magazine, and these are probably just for starters as far as his credentials are concerned, he is Dr. Richard Sandor. He is PhD in economics, chairman and CEO of the American Financial Exchange, which is an electronic exchange for direct interbank and financial institution lending and borrowing. Its benchmark Ameribor rate is designed to compete with LIBOR, the global benchmark lending rate right now, which is, of course, the London Interbank Offered Rate. He is also the CEO of Environmental Financial Products, which invents and designs new financial markets in the environmental area. He founded that in 1998. It has been an incubator to many exchanges, Chicago Climate Exchange for one, and the European Climate Exchange and others, to trade carbon credits. He is also a lecturer in law and economics at the Chicago Law School. So, Richard Sander, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. It's a pleasure, Consuelo. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you about LIBOR first, the London Interbank Offered Rate, which underpins nearly $200 trillion worth of derivative contracts and is the basis for U.S. citizens for many mortgages and student loans. What's wrong with LIBOR? Well, it is LIBOR was treated as a rate that I believe many thought was market determined and independently audited. And it turns out that it was a poll and it came under a lot of attack in 2011 and then subsequently a lot of uh, fines. And the result of that was to tighten it up. But nevertheless, in the meantime, both the U.S. government vis-a-vis the Fed, the British government, the Japanese government have developed alternative rates to LIBOR. And in the private sector, we've developed an alternative rate called Ameribor, the American interbank offering rate for regional and community banks. And competition is generally good. Why is that particularly necessary? Why do we need several different interest rate standards or benchmarks? Well, the the question actually, Consuelo, can be flipped around. Why is there only one interest rate? We know in the history of markets, be they commodities, equities, and fixed income, that there's more than one benchmark. So, for example, we have West Texas Intermediate for U.S. crude. We have Brency for U.K. and Europe. We've got a Middle East Sour. Uh, We've got a Shanghai rate, and that's in commodities. We have more stock indices than we have stocks. You know, you've got the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, NASDAQ, et cetera, Russell, Value Line, etc., etc., and the same with fixed incomes. LIBOR is a historical accident. It, it came about in the 60s. People didn't don't realize this. And there was a loan to the Middle East that a number of banks participated in. Interest rates were then volatile. 
So they wanted to make it a variable interest rate. To do that, they had to have consensus because it was more than one bank. And so the banks agreed to call each other and come up with a consensus rate. Nobody, I believe at that time, had any designs to create one worldwide interest rate benchmark. It just evolved into that. Once that happened, it became easy to adopt it as a common reference, and nobody paid much attention to it until uh, it didn't work. And there was uh, basically uh, collusion and a number of people fined. So we have a unique opportunity to start with a blank screen. And the blank screen says, okay, LIBOR may or may not exist after 2021. And that date is critical because that's when the British government is going to not have banks be part of the LIBOR process. So the UK did Brexit as well. They're also not going to be part of the LIBOR process. They are definitely rebels over there. They're rebels over there, but we not to be out rebelled, uh, followed them and came up with, they came up with the British uh, uh, rate so far. Um, We came up, with our own rate. I'm sorry, they came up with their own rate. We came up with our own rate. Uh, and ours is so far. They have one for the Brits. Um, Japan, Japan has one. Those rates are all risk-free rates. So they're the borrowing rates based upon having U.S. governments as collateral. Ameribor is an unsecured rate. Richard, let me stop you just for a moment, just so our audience understands that SOFR is the secure overnight financing rate. Uh, It's done by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So that's what you're talking about. And it's said to be the risk-free rate based on treasuries as collateral, right? That's exactly it, Consuelo. And then the American Financial Exchange, which you created, is an independent exchange. Your benchmark rate is called Ameribor. So explain what the American Financial Exchange is doing. And I will note that there are about $900 billion worth of contracts. Is that right? That were traded in the third quarter of 2018 on the American Financial Exchange? Yes. Well, we, we have 111 members, uh, 90 banks and 21 non-banks. Um, and these are banks that are not SIFIs. A SIFI is a special grant, systemically important financial institution. That is, the, the big banks are essentially SIFIs. Right. The smaller banks, the regionals and community banks, um, that probably your audience, a lot of them bank with, Um, those banks borrow and lend to each other on an unsecured basis. Ameribor is the average daily weighted weighted average of trading among those. And that is, as you correctly say, we trade roughly 900 million a day um, of that unsecured interbank lending. We also have broker-dealers, private equity, insurance companies that are non-banks. So we just simply say 
okay, this is regulated. We have a partnership with SIBO. They do compliance. There's anti-manipulation rules. So it is a transparent, regulated rate among regional and community banks predominantly that lend and borrow with each other. And therefore, this is a departure from LIBOR, uh, where there isn't a tape, there is not auditing procedures, it's not traded on an exchange. So what we bring is regulation and transparency, and we think that's a very big value proposition. Richard, explain the value of the rate on the American Financial Exchange. Is it more representative for these smaller banks of their market? Is it a better indication of what their borrowing and lending rates really are, what the reality is in their businesses? No, you're on the right track, Consuelo. This rate is more valuable because it represents an actual rate that they borrow and lend. And therefore, that rate can be used to create assets such as student loans, mortgages, credit cards that are tied to that rate. So they are automatically hedged from interest rate risk because they borrow at a rate and then they lend at that rate. So they have a balanced book and that's why it's better. With regarding to the breadth, there is no question that, that given it's regulated on a market, the volume for LIBOR was only 300 million. So actually we're- right. We're three times the size of what the LIBOR actual lending and borrowing was. So we're not as big as the secured rate, but that secured rate is not where 5,000 medium and, and regional banks borrow at. So it's more representative, and I think it provides a great deal of comfort for these banks to borrow and lend based upon their real costs, as opposed to what the big banks' costs are. So Richard, what does it do for me as an individual? Why should I welcome the Ameribor rate? That's the rate that's traded and it's transparent, as you said, in the American Financial Exchange among smaller banks and non-bank financial institutions. Why does it matter to me? Number one, it, it is reducing the cost of funding to banks, and therefore that should translate to better value for you as a borrower. If their costs go down, your costs go down. And this is an efficient way to operate and reduce the transactions costs among banks for borrowing and lending. And that's critical. Um, and it's competitively determined. So you can be sure that it is not being manipulated and therefore you're paying more for your credit card or your mortgages than you would otherwise. Are you hopeful about the future of competition for LIBOR? The American Financial Exchange, are there going to be more exchanges created? Do we need more? I mean, certainly American Financial Exchange is growing. Well, so you tell me what the outlook is. I, I, I'm extraordinarily bullish. You know, we did create a, an exchange and establish worldwide markets in carbon. 
we, you know, worked on in, uh, financial futures in the 70s um, and set a, a trend that was duplicated worldwide. I am more bullish about the need for a sound, regulated, transparent interest rate benchmark. And, and kind of, a, you know, being a University of Chicago person and being involved in the Chicago Exchange, you know, free markets are, are best and the market will suit and sort out the users that will value from these various different interest rates. So a world of the future might have big banks using SOFR, regional and community banks using Ameribor, the Brits having their own rate, the Japanese having their own rate. You know, I think that the market will sort out what is optimum and we feel that we have a big value proposition the 5300 small banks in america are the are the disproportionate part of the creation of jobs and employment uh we feel that it's important that they be pedestalized and and they have equal opportunities to capital that the big banks. And so we're servicing, admittedly, a bunch of small users relative to the big users. And we think, you know, uh, the ranchers and the cowboys can be friends, as Oklahoma song suggests. <laughs> Let me make a big change in topic. I want to ask you about the environmental product trading. And as I mentioned in my introduction to you, you're the CEO of Environmental Financial Products. That's an incubator to the Chicago Climate Exchange, the European Climate Exchange, and numerous others that are trading carbon credits. So tell us how that's going. And my understanding is that the Chicago Climate Exchange basically was in existence from 2003 to 2011. What happened to it and what is the future of carbon trading? Um, here is what happened uh, to the Chicago. It was a voluntary. It was a first mover. It was the basis for us establishing the European Climate Exchange and the t first Chinese exchange, the Tianjin Climate Exchange. And it was sold to ICE, a great company. And the voluntary part of it was discontinued. and. The what lives on in place of that for which we had tradable markets was a California market, a northeastern market called Reggie, and a number of renewable energy markets around the, the country. And there is a very big gap worldwide, Consuelo between environmental objectives and markets. And most people feel, particularly in the United States, that the markets have not worked in things like climate change. They have worked in reducing acid rain, that's unambiguous, um, and local pollution, but there has been an issue that somehow the United States is not participating. That is an incorrect perception. If we take a look at the California cap and trade market, the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is the New England states, New York, et cetera, 
The open interest, which is a measure of the breadth of a market, how many outstanding contracts, is at over 600,000. Well, to your listeners, what does that mean? To put it in perspective, the gold open interest, the comparable measure of the breadth of the gold market, is actually lower than the carbon market. And people are, I, I gave a talk in Berkeley a couple of weeks ago, one in Singapore, and the audience are aghast because everything you read in the headlines suggests that there's no markets in the United States, or right. if there are markets, that in fact they're not working. And our comeback is, how do you quantitatively measure it? And if you quantitatively look at it, it's been extraordinarily successful. So you, we have to recognize that, that is, this has become a state and local issue. And because there is no federal initiative, does not mean that the U.S. is not actively implementing carbon markets all over, but at a state level. And Justice Brandeis of the Supreme Court suggested that the states are laboratories for federal policy. And if we take a look at seatbelt laws and other things like that, these start at the local level. And normally we don't think of it, and living in Chicago, grain standards started at the Chicago Board of Trade in 1848. It took the federal government 60 years to establish USDA standards. So actually, the environmental markets in the United States are following food standards, seat belts, other things. They're ground up markets and they are working and they are not being covered because U.S. policy is not necessarily federal policy. It is a combination of local, state, and federal. So I hope your listeners appreciate that, that environmental markets are alive and well in the United States. They're also thriving in Europe, where their emissions are down 22% off their benchmark of 1990. And there are seven pilot exchanges going in China. And the way China works based on our business there and the dozens of trips we've made, nothing happens much. And then all of a sudden there's a big bang and something happens. And you, your listeners need to understand that you don't read about this, but there are seven pilot markets. Allocations are going to start next year. Within the next two, three years, China will have a full-fledged cap-and-trade program that will be used as a policy tool to reduce climate, global warming. And Richard, aren't CO2 emissions down significantly in the U.S. overall as well? Yes, they are. And and we don't point this out. We constantly say we're not doing enough, but the fact is we're doing an awful lot. And the U.S. continues to reduce its carbon intensity and absolute emissions 
And we need to look at the states and local governments. We need to look at the myriad of, of regulations, be it miles per gallon or other things that are having an effect. And we need to look at the fact that we are making rapid developments and ultimately electric cars, metering is getting improved. And even to put something totally out there, something we hear about the blockchain and cryptocurrencies, there's a number of efforts that are going on to better monitor and reduce carbon emissions in things like the blockchain and, and tokens. So, you know, this is ubiquitous. It's just not delivered as a coherent message. And Casuela, that's why I appreciate the opportunity to speak. So I have good news on both fronts, that the environmental movement in the United States and the use of markets to combat climate change are healthy and successful, right. and that also whatever we're reading about financial tools and, and issues related to big banks is gone, the banking system has been cleaned up, and there are now a, is a big menu of choice for big banks and large banks so that they can operate both of those constituencies at cheaper costs and pass the benefits on to the consumers. Well, I am psyched talking to you, Dr. Richard Sender. Thank you so much for leading the charge in all of these areas. I really appreciate it. And I really think you've given us all a lot of hope that there are markets that are being created that we can participate in as well as businesses. So thank you, Richard, for joining us. Consuelo, thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Richard Sander. He is chairman and CEO of the American Financial Exchange and also CEO of Environmental Financial Products. Also, thank you all for listening to this Wealth Track webcast as well. I'm Consuelo Mack. And of course, as we always say, make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. <music>